So today, uh, I have, as we continue our many counselor series, I have the privilege of introducing Jono Contestable to you. Yeah. Jono, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Jono's here with his wife, Kenzie. Yep. Uh, Jono is the campus pastor for Crossroads, the uh, Eldersburg campus. Has been there for, what, a year about now? Yeah, that's that's a moving target. It's been around for a couple of years, but we moved in in May. And so it feels good to have um, some roots. Excellent. Excellent. Well, welcome, Jono and Kenzie. Yeah, right. thank you. All thank right, you so much. Yeah. Right. Appreciate it. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing this morning? Yeah, exhausted. I heard it's a crazy week and uh, not a normal Sunday. I said, that's quite all right. I'm not a normal person, so this is going to work out really, really, really great, I think. Um, so bear with me and uh, I'll, I'll keep you hopefully awake. I know a lot of you served for VBS and I heard it was a great week. Uh, so thanks for being here. Uh, as uh, you know, you just heard, my name is Jono and I'm a pastor... Uh, at Crossroads in Eldersburg, joined by my wife, Kenzie, and we are really, really glad to be here. In fact, um, I've always admired uh, Uniontown from a distance. Got lots and lots of friends here, and it does, it feels, feels like a home away from home. So, very humbled to be here. I know that um, Pastor Frank uh, asked me a while ago, and uh, I consider that to be a huge honor to be entrusted uh, with, you know, with his flock and with you guys, and to uh, have the stage for a moment to open up God's truth uh, with you. And so, um, thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Um, with that said, I would love to kind of actually go back in time a little bit and bring you into what I wrestled with through 2020. If we went around the room. I feel like everybody had um, a different experience with 2020, but it was challenging no matter what uh, for every person. And so, uh, I found myself asking, having worked for a church, what is the church? Um, because we, we kind of say that it's not a service and it's not a time. And then once robbed of our services, our times are gathering together, it felt like the church kind of went through an identity crisis. What is the church? And, and, and now, in hindsight, it kind of feels like I got a head start on where culture has kind of led, where many believers have found themselves in you know, a, a movement of deconstruction with failures and, and headlines that um, can break our hearts. Uh, one thing after another. This doesn't sound like a happy start, but trust me, uh, we're gonna, we're, it's going to get good. <laughs> and, and, and so it was a really appropriate season to ask that question, but I learned this is a good question to continually ask. We say we're a part of this thing called the church, and yet if you had to define it, we might all have different definitions. We should be on the same page about what that is um, if we're all going to be a part of, of the church. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of found ourselves saying, well, what are we left with after 2020? What, what are we building back? And what were we building to begin with? It was kind of a revelation of sorts, revealing um, for many churches and, and individuals as well. And so by process of elimination, I kind of worked backwards. I said, well, I know what the church is not. And so I'm going to read that list to you. It's five things. I know it's not ours. Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church. Whose church is it? Jesus. Great, yes. And, and, and now, we don't know exactly maybe what the church is or all of its functions. Maybe that is not abundantly clear in Scripture. However, knowing that it is Christ's is enough. Knowing that it is not ours should change the way that we handle the church. So we know that. We, we also know that it's not optional. Jesus established this. This was His prescription to us. I am building my church. We tend to think it's optional. It's not. 
He says, this is my church, and in fact, Scripture says he will return for his church, his bride. Of all the things he could come back for, this, like the church is a hot mess sometimes. This is what he's coming back for? Yeah, it's not optional. We know it's not a place, and we know it's not a time. Rather, it is people. It is a community of disciples. It is the kingdom of God here on earth. So, let me say it another way. You don't get people plus building equals church. But that's how we operate sometimes. What it is, is people plus Jesus is church. And so, um, Getachew, uh, you got a church. You're waiting for a place. <laughs> and, and you need the place because the next truth of what the church is not is it's not a home for the holy. It's a hospital for the sick. Yeah, we got to get that one right. Um, Jesus himself clarified this for us. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. I came for the sick. And so uh, we try to make it a home for the holy, and then you have to you know, um, check a bunch of boxes before you even can come in. No, this should be the place where you check all the... It's like a hospital, you know. What's wrong with you? <laughs> What's your history? You're like, I'm checking all the boxes. That's church. I'm checking all the boxes, going down the list. And, and the, the, one of the functions of the church is to heal and help. I mean, that's, that's God's work, but He uses, He chooses to use us and the church to help people look more Christ-like, to help them in their faith, and to heal over time from just the, the fallen world, the sin that we are so easily entangled by, so on and so forth. And lastly, it's not perfect. And that should come as absolutely no surprise and shock, and yet is so vital to say out loud. It is so important that we understand why. Faith is a process, not perfection. That's part of it. And so we're all in process in different places in the process. We have a tendency in the church to judge someone exactly where they are forgetting that it took me 20-some years and so it might take them the same. The church should be friendly to that kind of a process. You don't have to have all the prerequisites to be a part of a community like this. It's not perfect. And yet, this is what Christ established. The church is not perfect because why? Well, it's made up of people. And people aren't perfect. And so the church ain't perfect. It's like real simple math once you start plugging all, all the pieces in. And, and so, partially to understand what the church is, we have to understand the function of believers. And so while there isn't tons written about the church, that was not a miss on Jesus' part. It's not like as He ascended, He went, oh no, forgot to give Him the playbook. Forgot the strategy session. I totally forgot when to tell Him when services should happen and where. And I forgot to tell No. He left nothing unchecked. He told us how we ought to act as believers. And that forms the church. That is the order. Part of understanding what the church is is, is a matter of semantics. It's language. Uh, we, we get church from a German word, which actually means house of God, which is a location. However, the origin, ekklesia in the Greek, actually stands for called out. A called out people. What this implies is that the church is to be a called out people by God to be different from the world. To be distinctly different. And, and not just weird. Um, there's a quote that says, because being holy is so hard, we settle for just being weird. <laughs> and, and we're called to be holy, be set apart, be other. Um, but we just kind of sometimes are really, really weird. And, and, and that's maybe part of it. The, the reason I say this is because the church is a movement, not a location. A movement. 
Meaning the urgency was never on a place to meet, but rather on the Gospel to spread. That was the early function of the church. And I would argue that is still our primary component, but we've got foundational things to look at. If we're built by believers, Christ is the cornerstone and God is the foundation. Praise the Lord. But then what are believers to be like? And so, uh, Jesus gives insight to this throughout His ministry, His time alive, His time with us. But this specific um, component that I want us to talk about this morning of, of the function of the church. Um, when, when, when you came into faith, there was, it was the most personal thing you've ever experienced. Christ died for you. And then suddenly, what was the most personal and, and the freest gift ever turned into the most costly, selfless thing ever. It was now, okay, sanctification. The process of becoming like Christ and, and the process of putting all others before yourself. Put the interest of others above yourself. Care to one another. So, welcome to the church. It's a bunch of us, it's a bunch of individuals who make up a collective we that is greater than the individual. And we f- together fulfill this movement of being called out by God To live distinctly different from the culture. So, Jesus reveals this truth to us in the form of a prayer. And if I were to ask you a prompting question before we read today, what do you think Jesus would pray for all generations? You you might fill in the blank with a lot of things. And you may fill it in differently based on a couple components. You might say, well, based on who I think... Jesus is, um, I think he would pray this for all future generations. Maybe like a, you know, great, great commandments, uh, recap or some good theology or I don't know what you'd fill in the blank with, but it might come as a shock what he actually prayed for for all future generations of believers in John 17. John 17 finds itself positioned in the context of this is so important to understand because just before he reminds his disciples all that is about to happen to him. Hey, here's what's going to happen. Yet again, I'm telling you. And he ends it with this fairly well-known verse, John 16.33, In me you can have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And then by the end of chapter 18, he has been betrayed by Judas. He's been denied by Peter. Rejected by the crowd. And sentenced by Pilate. That's a crazy story just in and of itself. And right in the middle, he pauses to pray. He pauses to pray. And while we don't have every private, intimate moment of Jesus' life depicted for us, we do have these critical junctures. We don't see every quiet time with, with, between Jesus and God, but he loved to commune with the Lord. And so there were plenty of times he went away early in the morning. He went away to be in prayer. But this one is the most comprehensive, the high priestly prayer. We have more in John 17 of a prayer that Jesus prayed to God than any other part of Scripture. And why is that so amazing? Because this is God incarnate. Jesus. God with skin on. Speaking to God the Father. Do they have the same heart? Yes. So what we are able to get a glimpse of, to have the curtain pulled back a little, is on the very heart of God displayed in word. His passions, His prompts, His his wishes, His desires, His commandments displayed in prayer. So the significance of this suddenly just goes 
really, really high in terms of what we are to read. So I would love to read again from John 17, starting in verse 20. Jesus, my prayer is not for them alone, His disciples, whom He just prayed protection over. I pray also for those who will believe in Me through their message. Well, who's He speaking to? All of us. Anyone who believes because their message never stopped. Because they were committed to the movement that they were called out for. That all of them may be one. Father, just as You are in Me and I am in You, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. I have given them the glory that You gave Me that they may be one as We are one. I in them and You in Me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that You sent Me and have loved them even as You have loved Me. Father, I want those You have given Me to be with Me where I am. And to see My glory, the glory You have given Me because You loved Me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know You, I know You. And they know that You have sent Me. I have made You known to them and will continue to make You known in order that the love You have for Me may be in them and that I Myself may be in them. This is God's Word. We could pack up and go home, I'm sure, that there's enough to spend weeks on in this excerpt. So strap in, because I'm going to try to do my best to cover a lot of it this morning. Right off the bat, we notice two things that I think are distinctly intriguing. It is who he prays for and what he prays. Not shocking. But, but if you take nothing else away from this, this is the only instance that we have of Jesus praying over all future believers. It's not the only time it happened. This is the only time that's recorded that we see and know. And so we have what a blessing to know this morning before anything else. Jesus has prayed over you. Jesus has prayed over you. Jesus has prayed over you. We can sit in that a long time. But it's interesting then what he prays as a, res- as a response to this. All believers, he prays one thing. Oneness. One thing. Unity. Of all the things he could pray. And, and, and let's break that down. We probably would fill in the blank based on how we think Jesus is with many other things. Do better. Try harder. Get, be right. Get, get it right. No. He didn't pray any of that. Not that any of those things aren't important, but he elevated unity above them. Why? What secret is there in unity that we may be missing and therefore missing as as an extension of the kingdom of God here on earth? This is a significant component to the movement we've been called out for. It's of great importance even just culturally. We know that individualism is a a deep-rooted cultural experience. It's, it's uh, you know, you do you, um, your truth, live your truth. Um, we can have an ent- entire apologetics course as to why that will um, ruin your life uh, and <laughs> why that theology falls and fails. Um, but that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to say that we can identify that that is a component that we're up against. And it's not an out there component. It's an in here component. It's a me component. Before we ever point our fingers out, Jesus, it's plank spec. 
That's what we're talking. Plank spec. Let's look at the plank. We have a tendency to make our faith individualistic. To make um, following Jesus all about me. To, to make church about preference and opinion. And, and, and so we have to acknowledge the tension even in the room. Even in ourselves. Before we can go forward. But it's not just a problem with ourselves. See, you cannot be who Jesus prays you will be by yourself. Can't do it. Good luck. Let us know if you figure it out. Write a book. You'll make millions. But it doesn't work that way. And, and, and beyond that, there's this divisiveness and divided culture that we find ourselves in. Anybody else just sick of the divisive uh, toxicity? The air is permeated thick with just pick a side or get out. There's no room for the middle ground. And Jesus made a living of being in the, me the messy middle. Doing what confused both sides. It, it, that was his ministry. Do we think ours is different or the same? And so we have to wrestle with finding the middle both when we are drawn in one sense to individualism and to the other sense the ways of the world and the culture that we find ourselves in. The goal, however, of this prayer is not unity in our culture and world. Why? It won't happen. He finished John 16 by saying, in this world you'll have trouble. In me you have peace. Well, what's peace? Shalom means nothing missing and nothing broken. That is not the way of the world. You get peace in Christ and in Christ alone. And that is where things are made whole again. That is the only place where two divided things can be brought together. Ah, see where I'm going. How did he know this? Well, Jesus knows our hearts. Our hearts haven't changed. Our culture has, but our, our hearts haven't. And He knew that one day we'd find ourselves in 2022 and beyond, and, and, and we'd wrestle tremendously, culturally, but much, much more as a church, with unity. And so He elevated its importance in His prayer. I would argue that the biggest problem the church in America has is disunity. And it doesn't matter what has divided. Not saying that it's not important, but, but let's be clear. It, it, we can pick anything and get divisive about it. Um, and, and I don't say this from anyone who's figured it out. I always uh, jokingly, like Crossroads is far from it. Uh, we, we don't have it down pat. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning with you. Um, I like to say, you just need two people in one church to have division. That's it. I mean, like, if you're married, you know. You know what I'm talking about. We don't have to break that theologically down. You just get it. And, and, and so, it's a tension to manage, not a problem to solve. We're not going to solve this one. But it does not negate the responsibility to give it every effort we can. So it doesn't much matter what divides. Baptism, is it infant? Is it believers? Is it sprinkle? Is it dunk? Is it communion? Is it intinction? Is it the actual body? Is it passing of the cup? The common cup? Is it what? Go down, pick your, pick your poison. It doesn't matter what it is. And, and, and there's wise people on both sides. I'm not here to determine your theology. you got a great leadership who does that. That's not my point. My point is, well, how do we have good theology and not sacrifice unity at the same time? And understand the process that we are all in and in the process. So, 
I'm acknowledging that we have a dilemma that sometimes creates a gap. I call it the silo-solo dilemma. Solo because we still have that individualistic temptation and mindset. And silo because sometimes the, the, the resting state of a church is to be inwardly focused. And, I, and that's not even a bad thing. It's not. Here's why. Uh, you have plenty of care needs in the room. It would take us all week and then some to just address the care needs and the prayer in this room. And this should be the place that that happens. And so rightfully so, a church kind of has its culture, its uh, own vibe, but, but that does not neglect the outside need. And what happens when there's a gap, this is human nature, what happens when there's a gap is we rarely fill it in with really good stuff. Maybe we're jaded, maybe it's sin, I don't know, but, but I'm not great, maybe you aren't either, at filling in the gap, and it doesn't matter, it's a time gap, it's a spatial gap, it's, an, it's a knowledge gap, whatever the gap is, we will fill that in with some nasty stuff. I will give you three when it comes to churches. The first is competition. When, it, when, it, when we perceive the gap, there might not even be competition, but suddenly we start acting like there is, pretending that there is. Why? When you're on the same team, can you lose? No. And, and you go, well, how? I can't be on the same team with them. Okay, well, whose problem is that? <laughs> we got to start somewhere. Jesus prayed this. This is the heart of God. But where, how do we start addressing this? Judgment and condemnation are the second. And it's differences and imperfections. But we know the church isn't perfect. So why do we create that gap and then fill it in with all the negative? Last is, we'll fill in the gap with separation, isolation, and then suddenly we're at limited capacity. Suddenly we can't do things that would be easy if there was unity in the body. What was once easy is impossible for a single church now. Do you know the statistics on changing a culture? It's one-tenth of the culture um, to change the rest of the culture. Does any one church in Carroll County stand a chance at changing the culture of Carroll County? No. Does a unified body have a chance of changing the culture in Carroll County? Oh, suddenly it's easy. It's easy. I mean, it's not. If it were easy, we'd be unified. <laughs> My caveat. But it would make things easier that are seemingly impossible. And we do not understand the damage we do to the body when we're divided, when we are divided, Paul makes an illustration of the church being like the body. He says, if one part suffers, they all suffer. If one rejoices, they all rejoice. Um, last time you stubbed your toe, did your whole body feel it? Yeah. We should hurt more for other churches. And we should rejoice more for other churches. Well, you don't do either until you know other churches. That's unity. It doesn't mean you got to look the same and do all the same stuff, but wow. A relational bond because we share this movement. Common ground. Paul says, now each of you, each of you are part of the body of Christ. Individual identity in Christ, certainly, but corporate identity is key. Absolutely pivotal to our faith. And when we cut ourselves off from the body, I, I mean... Let's use this analogy. Only because it's gruesome, but I think it paints a picture of the church. Spiritually speaking, when we're not unified, it is a dismembered body. 
And, and that is a gruesome picture, but much more than that, how good is a dead body to anybody? It's no good. Can a dead body serve anybody? No. We, we don't understand spiritually what happens. Why is this such a comp- component of the heart of God? I think silently, silently, things die off when we don't invite spiritually in the background, in the background, and we'll miss it. And, 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 and not only that, but a diverse body, as Paul would argue, is a necessary body that different parts have different purposes, different functions. It's absolutely essential. He prayed for all future believers. That meant, that meant um, ethnicity, that meant gender and economics, politics and age. He knew all sorts of people. The gospel was for all people, was it not? Is it still? He knew. Well, well, how can Jesus pray that? Is He delusional or crazy? Or is He creating a way that is higher, better, and more unifying than any divisive factor that might come against? I'll go with the latter. I'll go with the latter. Jesus was in the business of making ways where there were no ways. What do we do? We elevate all sorts of other things above Him. We go, well, Jesus is nice, but my politics, don't you dare. No, this is not what the heart of Christ was revealing in John 17. And and it makes sense why then the enemy would attack so consistently and subtly this area of our faith. Um, I'll put it another way. The devil wants to divide and cause disunity. Any separation between you and God and any separation between you and someone else, devil's winning. Devil's happy. He's like, sweet, wash my hands, I'm good to go. They don't even know. And, and what's silly, if we think about it, is we take something, and I'm using the Bible, but the Bible is, I'm not um, hurting the Bible here. I'm saying this is often where we find our disunity. What we do is we say, um, that's the problem, right? And what the enemy is saying is, I don't care what divides you guys, as long as your division, as long as you're divided, I win. And we have such a propensity to focus on the thing that divides, forgetting that vision itself is already winning and hurting us. Hurting. Might not feel like it, but it does. And yet, the biggest threat to unity is not even the enemy. The biggest threat is your pride and mine. C.S. Lewis says it this way in, in response to the question, what is the greatest sin? He says, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. There's no fault which man, which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And unfortunately, myself included, Christians can be the most prideful people, can't we? The question that I am not, I don't have this figured out, but welcome to my world, is how can I know that I believe truth? That I know that 
that this is truth and life and good and not be prideful about it. Because our pride is never justifiable. I think we can take God's truth, handle it with our pride, and it does not look honoring to God, helpful to others, or glorifying. We're playing with fire. And we have to make sure that we understand. So what happens instead of dying to ourselves in humility is we divide ourselves until we're on our little pockets of comfort. And then we don't have to face the things I have to die to. Isn't that easier? It is. But it'll kill you. Disunity is the heart of God. Unity has to start here. I am a sinner who found a Savior and I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Humility is the doorway into unity. It's, it, this is what humility is. I care more about what people think of God than I care about what people think of me. Losing the individual into the collective and saying, we together form a body that should look beautiful and distinctly different from this world. When I believe that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works so no one can boast, I'm humbled. Every day. Every day got to remind myself. Not by works. No matter what I do or don't do and how I get it wrong and how I get it right today, praise the Lord for His grace. And I will keep trying. This is the posture for unity. This is the, this is the soil that unity can start to grow and stem from. It, you know, humility is the only way you listen first and quickly. Humility is the only way that you have restraint in speaking or, or typing. We'll go there. It's the only way that you, that you can build bridges to people. Humility is the only way that we can acknowledge I still have changing to do in this process of sanctification that I'm on. Romans 5, Titus 3, great places to pray, study, and have some homework uh, if you want to continue on. I love how Titus 3, Paul says, um, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. We never like to think of the way we create division in that term. What Paul didn't say is don't be the divisive person because it was implied. It was, hey, based on everything else I've ever told you, you could never find a to be a divisive person. You can't justify it. You can't tell me it's okay. You should never do it. At no point. Don't be the divisive person. Be the unifying person. Here's the problem. That costs. And if I could sum up Christ's call in one way, it's front the bill. Take the cost. Deny self, take up your cross and follow me. What he says 10 out of 10 times is you pay the bill. What does forgiveness mean? If your neighbor breaks your window, somebody's still got to pay to fix the window even if you forgive them. What Jesus says is front the bill. Assume that you're going to pay the price. Assume you're going to pay the debt. Unity is not cheap or easy. But how do we make every effort? How do we be the ones to lead the charge? So we know. I'm going to wrap up here. So we know that, that Jesus' prayer is important. It's the very heart of God. And I believe it grieves when we get this wrong. We know it's threatened. It's threatened by the world. It's threatened by the enemy. And it's threatened by the flesh. By ourselves. But actually, what is it? Unity is not uniformity. It is not the same. Uh, I'll say it a few ways. One is, God is three in one, and all three are distinctly unique. Different functions, different. So unity is not uniformity. And, and, and I also mean that 
we're all wrong about something theologically speaking. This might be the most freeing thing I say all morning. Congratulations, you're welcome. Uh, Not an excuse to stop learning theology. That's the basis of your relationship with God. (laughs) But you're wrong about something. And so am I. Like abysmally. Like we'll get to heaven and be like, whoa. Praise the Lord for His grace. So let's not let what we think we know get in the way of how we know we are called to treat people. I think Jesus taught us how to treat people. He didn't give us every theological answer. Probably for good reason. Not that it's not important, but He said, I'm going to show you the hill to die on. And the hill to die on is the same as Christ. The foot of the cross is level. By no other name, by no other way, by, no, by nothing else do we stand a chance of unity in the body. I love that he established his church upon Peter's confession and acknowledgement of who he was. When Peter got it, he built the church. The church should be nothing more than a bunch of people who can say, Jesus is Lord. He is Messiah. And I don't deserve Him. And that's it. When that is our mantra, when that is the heart of our church, man, unity can flourish in that environment. Now, diversity is not a threat to our comfort, but it is warmly welcomed. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. If if our desire is on earth as it is in heaven, and God is diverse because we're all made in His image, then the church is going to look different. It's going to look crazy. If we do our job right, we're uncomfortable. We're uncomfortable. And so we want to be uncomfortable. Here's, here's what I'm saying. Oneness, unity, is finding common ground for the common good. Common ground for the common good. We are only able to be one because of the Gospel of Jesus. The message of the cross that saved a sinner like you and a sinner like me. And, and all of this is summed up. Jesus said it three times. Why? Why? Why unity? Why oneness? Why is this the heart of God? Why should we care? Why should we make every effort even if it's a failing task 10 out of 10 times? Why? It is mission critical. He says, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as you have loved me. The world will see the love of God when people who are nothing alike can warmly welcome one another. Can you imagine what the church would look like in our culture? A culture that I've never seen it more divided. Can you imagine what a unified church would look like? There's no aroma but that of Christ if the church is is unified. There's no one who gets glory but, but God Himself if the church is unified. So will it make us uncomfortable? Yes. Will it push the bounds of what we're willing and wanting to do? Yes. But that's what following Jesus involves. That's part of our movement together. And it's potent and powerful. This message is reinforced when we look like nothing else. The world is doing everything to divide because it's broken and shattered and splintering. Don't be shocked when it is. Jesus told us that. Be shocked when the church isn't. Be upset when the church isn't. 
Be upset when believers aren't. That should hurt us because I firmly believe that this hurts the heart of God. It grieves Him. So, we have a part to play in this. As I wrap up, are we willing to lay down pride for sake of unity? Not because anything else Jesus said is is untrue and unimportant. No. It's just a matter of priority that He prayed one thing for all future generations of believers. Are we willing to find and fight for common ground for the common good? Are we willing to sacrifice self so that God's glory looks all the better and that the Gospel looks all the richer? I mean, worst case scenario when the church unifies, it looks more broken and we're more grateful. And and the world can say, how can they be that messed up? (laughs) And still so, so different. I want what they're having. We get it all right. And then it's just this sweet invitation to the world. You can too. Come on in. I want to pray and I want to just encourage Uniontown in my prayer. So if you can just bow your heads with me. Lord, we come before You and I am so grateful for this, this body. For this local gathering of Your church, Your ecclesia, God. For this movement that we are on together. Lord, I pray that this church would continue to see the fruit that they have. Lord, I am grateful that there is such good rapport of this church in our community. Lord, that they have made a difference. That they are here, that You have established them, that You've brought health back, that You've restored them. Lord, that You have guided, led, and directed them. Lord, I pray over Frank that he would be recharged in this season. Lord, that he would come back on fire. Fresh faith, fresh eyes. Lord, I pray for Mark as he leads now. The rest of the staff, God. I pray for this body that we wouldn't wait for what leadership does for us to say, I'm going to do what Jesus calls me to do. Lord, I pray that we would all, all be willing to take further steps to be unified as one body, God, as You intended Your bride. You only have one, Lord. Help us care for her. Love her. Treat her, uh, Lord, until you come back, Lord, that this would be.